The end user property market in the UAE still seems to be soft, with rents on a downward trend, according to the latest data for the second quarter in Abu Dhabi. And by the same token, the development pipeline for construction projects is not as prolific as it has been. However, news out of Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia this week indicates that new projects are steadily picking up as we head into 2020. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Happy to welcome to the studio uh, for this episode, Michael Fahi, Assistant Business Editor. Hi, Mike. Hey, Mustafa. How are you? I'm good. So you particularly wrote two of the pieces um, that I mentioned. One was about um, morale uh, in Abu Dhabi had secured investment from a Singapore-based company for its Yas Village development on, on Yas Island. Yeah. And also Neom, which is the big city in the Red Sea that Saudi Arabia is building as part of its Vision 2030 diversification project, yes. has also issued construction awards for the workers' village, that, that for the workers that are actually going to build this city, but it's like a 10,000 strong um, capacity workers' village. It was a pretty big job. Yeah, well, there were three um, separate uh, awards, each for 10,000. So there's going to be 30,000 people within that village. And they, as you said, are just the people who were building. So I'm putting, t- I'm putting together a hypothesis um, for this episode, and that is that, um, one, that construction activity is expected to pick up in 2020 specifically for Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, and we can talk about that. Um, secondly, that um, you know, end-user market might be a bit soft in terms of rents that we're seeing in the UAE, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, but that isn't necessarily tied anymore to kind of construction work and demand. Um, the, the property market has changed so much over the last few years that we're looking perhaps at different trends and patterns. Yeah, Um if I come back to, or if I start with rents, I think um, it's quite, there's always been this hypothesis uh, in the Abu Dhabi and the Abu Dhabi market is maybe 18 months behind where Dubai is in the cycle. And I personally don't think that's the case anymore. Um, I think the dynamics between the two markets are, are very different now. And that's largely based on the on the supply. I mean, if you look at supply, uh, I took some figures from JLL, and purely where we are at the end of June, um, the amount of supply in Dubai is pretty much double where we are in Abu Dhabi. You've got 536,000 units existing in Dubai and 260,000 in Abu Dhabi. Um, but the pipeline over the next couple of years is significantly higher than Dubai. And that's really what's been causing the weakness in the market. And also the um, the recent decision by uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid to set up the Dubai Rental Committee uh, to control supply in the Emirates, uh, where he has put together um, a group of government-related entities so that they better coordinate supply with private sector companies. I like I, I like that development. We did mention it in the in the last episode that mm-hmm. that was that was one of the big news items um, of recent weeks. Uh, but to come back to your to your point about the decoupling mm-hmm. of Abu Dhabi and Dubai, ten years ago, and I think this is where it comes from, right? So yeah. ten years ago, um, when the bubble burst in Dubai, and I use the bubble metaphorically yeah. rather than necessarily literally, sure. Um, Everyone said, oh, Abu Dhabi is going to keep going. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, the Abu Dhabi prices were still rising yeah. when Dubai property, when demand fell in Dubai. Yeah. Right? This is before the, the, the big, uh, you know, the big recession hit us in 2009, 2010. Sure. Um, and, but then Abu, it proved that by 2010, 2011, Abu Dhabi was experiencing something somewhat similar in terms of demand for property. Yeah. Um, and so now we look at it and we say, you know, and and actually, over the over subsequent years after that, we saw that um, as the peaks and troughs hit Dubai, so they they hit Abu Dhabi. Sort of six months later, or a year later, or a year and a half later, depending on 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 your trajectory. Um, but now, what we're seeing is, I think, a complete overhaul of both the property sector in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, where um, Abu Dhabi is now very much driven by a government. Uh, stimulus government investment. You've got the 50 billion dirham uh, Redden 21 project over the next three years. Um, the morale, they did secure outside investment from um, a Singapore investor, mm. but I'm sure that the sentiment to bring in that investment was partly because everybody knows now that there's going to be uh, government money um, coming into into the sector. And you had also Aldar um, launching a Sadiat project. It's first on Sadiat. Um, this week as well. So you're seeing some activity and there's commitments as part of Redden 21 um, to build projects, to build housing, uh, to put money in there. Separately, Dubai has traditionally been, you know, private sector as much as public sector activity mm. in um, in, in the property market. You know, if you count Imar as a public listed company, yes, it's a GRE to a certain extent, but very much behaves like a, like, like a private sector company. Sure. But you have all the others. That the, the amount of units that are there, and I'll try and finish my point with some semblance of cohesion. The 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 demand and supply there is now about ensuring there's enough supply to ensure affordable housing for the people that are going to live in Dubai. They're going to start their own businesses, be based there. They're going to be investors, and if you tie it into all of the recent uh, visa reforms to encourage more people to be based in the UAE on a wider level. You can understand that perhaps the dynamics have changed completely in Dubai. Yeah. Completely. Uh, well, I, I'll come back to a couple of things. Firstly, um, just to talk about maybe why one or two of those announcements that were made this week uh, kind of makes sense. With morale, um, there's a lot of work going on on Yas Island, there's a lot to come in terms of the marina and attracting new industries to the island. But the this specific project, uh, Yas Village, is very much aimed, uh, we've talked about temporary workers, but the permanent workers who are going to be there, this is, for Abu Dhabi, still quite affordable accommodation. It's nine buildings, It's um, and they're all one and two bed apartments. They're aimed at the the type of people who will eventually live and work there. So given that that doesn't exist there at the moment, there is perhaps a natural demand which will encourage outside investment in it. Um, for Sadia, I think that's that's also very interesting, but it's it's maybe a little bit of a different dynamic. I mean, for Aldar, it makes a hell of a lot of sense, I think, to... To do something like this, uh, Aldar has a huge land bank. Each land bank was something like 77 million square meters a couple of years ago. And that was before it was given the mandate for Sadiat. So now you have all that extra land on Sadiat. It can quickly put the infrastructure in place to 
to have these plots there that people can then build within certain guidelines to their own ability. But for for Aldar, it's it's a nice way of generating cash. Uh, it, the KPMG put out some data. Um, they put out a survey of sentiment construction industry executives in the UAE. 53% of them are optimistic about the next 12 months. Um, so, you know, that indicates that whatever wherever the activity might be, there's going to be activity. There's going to be jobs uh, for these companies to work on. But probably Saudi Arabia, if we move away from the UAE, is really going to be the bright spot. Um, you know, as we mentioned, the Vision 2030 diversification plan. Um, line site data uh, that was out said that there are 5,000 capital projects worth over $1.6 trillion in the pre-execution stage in Saudi Arabia, which sounds like a lot. It certainly does. Um, I think there are going to be people, although there, there is clearly a lot of activity in Saudi Arabia, particularly on the consultant side, they are the people who get involved up to a year, 18 months before the contractors actually moved in. But I think there is going to be still a little bit of wariness on the part of some in the construction industry to rush back into Saudi. I mean, the past couple of years there have been have been really tough for contractors. You've seen some of the biggest contractors fall into trouble. Saudi Oje went bankrupt. Saudi Bin Laden is effectively now into state control. Uh, but that was possibly part of the dynamic link to Vision 2030. I mean, and also the oil price. Once uh, in 2015, the government put a, three, a freeze on uh, projects being built while it reassessed ahead of Vision 2030 being published. And at the same time, once they had that vision in place, um, they decided to do things quite methodically to set up project management offices uh, to handle the award of new projects. So you had this period of maybe two or three years where all of that work was being done in the background, where these project management offices were being set up, where there were no new contract awards and where a lot of government work had or where a lot of construction work had pretty much stopped because the government was, and in many ways is still, the main sponsor in Saudi Arabia of the construction market. But as you mentioned, there is optimism, and a lot of that optimism, I think, is linked to what is expected from Vision 2030 moving forwards. So um, a lot of the projects, we've mentioned NEOM already, um, a lot of the projects linked to the public investment fund are moving ahead reasonably quickly. You've got things like Kadia, you've got things like Alula, uh, the Red Sea development projects where they're building the whole kind of tourism infrastructure out there. There are already contracts that are being awarded there. I mean, we've mentioned the construction village at Neon, there's construction village or two separate contracts for construction villages at the Red Sea development as well. So those transformational projects, those very high profile projects linked to PIF, are the ones that are, do seem to be moving forward, but also seem to be moving forward maybe in a slightly different way. It's the even the construction village. It wasn't something where the government is saying, we will pay for this in advance. Here's, here's the lump sum contract. This is what we want to be built, bid for it. Uh, they've been done under a basis where the two companies that uh, are on the two companies building the construction villages have done it on a kind of build and operate basis. So they agree to run the villages for 10 years and they get an annual payment from it. And so there's maybe a bit more of a security and a bit more um, of a vision in what's coming in terms of revenue. 
And and I guess that they are there for ten years. So yeah. you know, it, it it it's ensuring that there is a, a need to make sure that the it's built properly. Sure. Because it isn't just build and go away. And that's the whole argument uh, with public-private partnerships with PPP that people have been making for many years, that um, the companies, if you award a 25- or 30-year concession to run something, that the companies involved have that stake and don't maybe look to bid cheaply, build cheaply, and get out of there without worrying about what these assets are going to look like in five or ten years' time. So, I mean, Saudi Arabia, I mean, anecdotally, I'm hearing people who are taking jobs in the property sector in Saudi Arabia who were in the property sector here in the UAE. It seems like uh, the the government will be essentially the master developer for everything um, rather than having several master developers, um, private and public, as you might have had in UAE over the last 20 years. Yeah, I think that's, in all honesty, I think that's a case of wait and see at the moment because on the real estate side, the idea was that um, the government was going to free up land or give land parcels to some of the prominent developers, people like Darrell Arkan, who would then take the land that has been granted or given at a low rate to build affordable housing because uh, people complain about the prices of housing here, but the high land values in Saudi Arabia mean that um, the apartments and villas are pretty uh, out of the reach of people on a standard wage. And if we look at the difference, sort of, you know, there, there's a sense of like a, a repeat in a way of the experience of, of what happened in the UAE from 2002 uh, for about six or seven years that in Saudi Arabia, there may be that similar scenario playing out of a, of a boom in property and construction um, in a similar way. But very much it feels like um, a lot of the lessons learned maybe pre-crisis or post-crisis rather, are going to be applied in Saudi Arabia. So it should be more sustainable and less likely to to suffer any kind of, of sudden sharp end to it, at yeah. least in terms of supply and demand. I mean, there's always other factors that come into play, but but in terms of actual market dynamics. Yeah, well, one would hope so. Um, with Again, with Saudi Arabia, the, the, there was a construction boom, particularly between 2011 to 2013, 2014 when, but again, most of that was government sponsored and it was big flagship projects like airports, like the Metro in Riyadh, which is due to come online this year. Um, whereas the housing market was largely left to, to the private sector. Now the government under Vision 2030 has made real estate uh, a target where they want to double the size of that market, but they also want to provide much more affordable housing. So how this happens, again, I think is a matter of wait and see. But um, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, I think um, there is the expectation that maybe the government grants land or makes zoning easier or puts... Um, builds an encouraging framework for the private sector then to maybe take it on. Let's stick with property, but perhaps of a different aspect, which was a big story this week that uh, Imar, uh, as we mentioned, the Dubai-based developer, um, told his downtown Dubai um, occupants that they shouldn't let their apartments or units 
on the likes of Airbnb anymore. Mm-hmm. And that decision, which was, was you know, de- according to the company, down to their concern about what these units were being used for in terms of these short lets. Um, and they were worried about, you know, some of them weren't family friendly. You know, the, the, the idea being that there was some... Uh, disruption to the to the cohesion of the community. Um, what what perhaps raised some tension was that it coincided with Imar's own launch of its own sort of Airbnb style short let platform, mm. where it's putting some of its properties on there. Yeah, um, and the and and so there was a lot of speculation that the the two were coincidental, well, and it, so it caused a bit a bit of a fuss. Yeah. I think the last yeah. the last week or so. Well, I mean, it clearly doesn't look very good, does it? The fact that these two things happen at the same time. But um, I don't know. I think I'm willing to give MR the benefit of the doubt with this. If you have neighborhoods where they are in charge still as a master developer, they are the people responsible for how the community runs and people pay big service charges to them, then... If there is a concern with that kind of short let, I can understand why they might want to take control of that. Now, of course, it's a cynic might look at that and any certainly anyone who was renting their apartment using this service who now will have to go through email and say that the timing looks a little convenient. But if you're a neighbor of an apartment that is where maybe there have been parties going on or other activities that have kept you up all night, then at least you know that if these lets are being arranged through MR, you have that recourse. You can go back to the company to say the apartment was being used for this. Well, in markets like Singapore and, and, and Paris, there have been real issues with platforms like Airbnb. Sure. And actually, with, with no to begin with, no regulation and then really harsh regulation that almost you know, banned Airbnb from certain places. I mean, we've said this before, the UAE went a different route where at the beginning they were quite tight on control mm-hmm. and then loosened it up. So why I think this is significant is that perhaps while Imar may have been working with the best of intentions with, with in regards to this decision, it wasn't their decision to take. The Department of uh, the Dubai uh, Commerce, Tourism and Commerce Department, Dubai Tourism, mm-hmm. are the ones that regulate um whether you can put your units on uh, platforms like Airbnb. At the beginning, they only allowed sort of companies that had multiple units to register with them and pay a fee. And then they loosened it up and allowed individuals or people with one unit to do so over time once they understood how this was going to affect the market. Because hotel operators, for example, would say, hey, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're cannibalizing you know, our demand. Mm-hmm. But it seemed to be in balance. So if Imar had an issue with this, you know, and this is why this is a really significant moment for for the for the Dubai economy, the wider UAE economy, is that in the past you needed companies like Imar that had, I think, it's something like two percent of the overall Airbnb market or something like that. The okay. short let market is their property. You needed them to act like the regulator, right, in a fast growing market. Yeah, but now you don't. You've got a regulator. Well. And this is where you want the regulator to step in. But MR only has control over MR's own communities. It doesn't have control over the market as a whole. So I suppose that's an issue for the regulator. I mean, Damak has, what, f- about 40,000 holiday homes or short-let apartments that it's building too, and it will manage its own properties itself. The, the developers have a reputation, and their reputation will be based on partly on what they deliver, but partly on what their communities look like. 
and how those communities age and how well things are repaired and essentially what's going on in those communities. But that's and, why you need a regulator because a regulator has to weigh up the interests of the private company or the developer, mm -hmm. the interests of the consumer, and then the interests of the wider economy in terms of innovation and take up of new technologies. So Imar will come from its own point of view, and as you you, you put it, fairly justified, mm. you'd, you'd add. Like, they don't want to ruin their brand, no. right? And, and you can understand that. And their shareholders will be saying, hold on a minute, you know, you need to protect, you know, the, the reputation that we've invested in. So fair enough. But there isn't just that consideration anymore in a, in a maturing economy. I suppose so. And I suppose if, I mean, it's, it's all well and good for me to sit here and say that... Um, that MR needs to look after its communities, but I don't own uh, an apartment within downtown Dubai where there is now somebody telling me who I can let it to and when. I don't um, mind that they're saying that. I just think it's it should come from, you know, the, it should come from not, an, I mean, the regulator will never be neutral, mm. but should come from a third party that is able to see all sides. And you have one. It's not like you don't. In the past, we didn't have them. You know, the economy was growing so fast. Mm. We're having to do things and we didn't have, we, regulation was having to catch up. But now regulation actually is ahead of the curve. Dubai tourism has actually been ahead of the curve on short lets. And if there's an issue, go to them, let them look at it, let them tackle it, let them deal with it. And I think everybody will accept it because they understand that that's their role. But when, when a private company, whoever it is, tries to act like the regulator now in a much more mature economy, that's when perhaps we have misunderstandings. Sure. But if I were that private company and I, for both Damak and for MR, you have these huge communities where they are essentially policing everything that goes on in there. You know, they're policing the, the pools. It's their own management companies that are running them. So... While regulation may ultimately be where this ends up, in the short term, they clearly feel like they have to take control of the situation. Um, we'll move on just to let you know that there are, as before we wrap, there are other stories you should look at on the national.ae. Um, financial institutions in the GCC are catching up with the latest technologies in retail banking. That's according to ratings agency S&P Global. And that's important because customers are demanding better services based on uh, these innovations. And also the International Monetary Fund is suggesting that Saudi Arabia increase its VAT to 10% from 5%, of course, in consultation with other GCC countries. But they see this as being an important way for Saudi Arabia to offset any volatility or uncertainty around oil prices. And it has been a big week for oil and gas, uh, particularly here in, in the UAE. Um, Abu Dhabi had the World Energy Congress. Uh, Saudi Arabia's new uh, energy minister was there, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, his first assignment, if you like, after he was sworn in. Um, he was very forthright on a number of uh, uh, points, particularly nuclear energy. said so Saudi Arabia would uh, push ahead with its pursuit of clean uh, nuclear energy as part of diversifying their own energy mix, their own energy security. Um, there was a lot of discussion, actually, at the World Energy Congress around uh, nuclear. Um, the UAE's... Um, Emirates Nuclear Energy Corporation, their CEO, Mohammed Al-Hamadi, um, he said that there are some unhelpful myths being created in popular culture around nuclear energy. He, he cited HBO's Chernobyl, which is fantastic. Um, dr drama series, but, but he said that people then begin to fear 
um, nuclear energy. And 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 what Enec has done, and what he said needs to be done, um, whenever you are promoting nuclear energy, is to make sure that your public information campaigns are thorough enough and regular enough um, to give the public um, that confidence. Um, and the UAE, of course, has Baraka nuclear energy plant. It's currently testing its third reactor. It's connected its third reactor to the grid. Um, they've been building that um, for much of the last uh, eight or nine years, and it, everyone's expecting it to be online. It could provide somewhere in the region of a quarter of the UAE's electricity. So go to the national.e for that and, and other stories. Um, that's it for today. Michael Fahey, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. We'll get you on again for sure. Okay. Um, if you've enjoyed this show, please do subscribe wherever you get your audio content. Leave a review, please, a good one. Um, all that remains is to thank our production team, Arthur Edison, Aisha Khan, and you all for listening. Do join us again next time. 